Welcome to Montana Classical College. This is our second session of our class, Nationalism versus Globalism. We will discuss perpetual peace versus the political, Immanuel Kant versus Carl Schmitt. Kant and Schmitt are, I guess you could say, pretty smart guys and prolific writers. So what we will discuss here is not necessarily their last word on the subject matter. Nonetheless, they help us stake out fundamental and highly influential positions on our topic. Now, last time, we discussed universal human rights as a troubling response to the problem of anarchy in international relations. Universal human rights are well-intentioned, but they presuppose or point to the need for a one-world state to enforce them. Curtis Yarvin helped bring out how ideologically suffocating such a world might be, and he pointed to a need for the world to remain in distinct parts with genu genuinely different ways of life. We wondered, though, if in the end, Yarvin is too preoccupied with safety in such a way that he might be closer to Kant's hopeful vision of the world than he is to Schmitt's. Next time, we will discuss Eric Maria Remarque's All Quiet on the Western Front and Ernst Jünger's The Storm of Steel, and we'll see how they help show in a much more visceral and personal way why we should turn to Kantian or Schmittian visions of the world. Now, if you like music, you might... Uh, like listening to Wagner's Parseval Prelude in order to get a feel for the tone of Kant's work. When we turn to Schmidt, you might listen to Beethoven's 17th Piano Sonata, also called The Tempest. Links will be provided on the substack. Now, in his essay, Perpetual Peace, one of the first things that Kant says is, is that it is not, it is not the people who are interested in war. Rather, it is only the heads of states who are interested in war, and allegedly, quote, they cannot get enough of it. This is a sentiment that Kant expresses more than once in the essay. Indeed, it seems to be a significant basis of his case for Republican or representative government. And it's a notion that has really captured and animated the imagination of many important political figures in U.S. history. In Woodrow Wilson's war message, when he said that the United States would join the lists of World War I, he pointed out that it was not the German people the U.S. was going to be at war with, but rather it is the German leaders who are enemies of humanity. To be bellicose for Wilson is not to be an enemy of the United States, but rather against all of humanity. You can think about part of President George W. Bush's rationale for removing Saddam Hussein once the weapons of mass destruction case started to look weak or President Obama's rationale for participating in the removal of Gaddafi in Libya. If we just get rid of the bad leaders, then the people, who are good everywhere in the world, will flourish. That's why both Iraq and Libya are doing so well today. <laughs> if you are looking to take a vacation in the spring, I recommend going to Iraq and Libya, thanks to uh, our last two illustrious presidents. Now, that is to say... Even if Kant's name is not always invoked, some of his ideas provide the cornerstone for thinking about international relations today. As we will soon see, his articles about perpetual peace planted the seeds for the Kellogg-Briand Pact, an accord that tried to ban war from the planet after World War I. It also sets the ground for the League of Nations and, eventually today, the United Nations. Kant is also big in popularizing the idea of universal dignity on secular grounds, which helps make the Universal Declaration of Human Rights possible. Now, let's turn to Kant's essay, Perpetual Peace. 
Kant says in the opening paragraph, the philosophers dream of perpetual peace, whereas rulers cannot get enough of war. But is it really true that all philosophers have dreamed of perpetual peace? Sometimes we think of the uh, classical philosophers as fuddy-duddies, but even they uh, would reject uh, Kant's view of this in a big way. In Plato's Republic, for instance, books two to three are devoted to outlining the proper education of an elite warrior guardian class. The foreign policy he recommends is not imperialist, but nonetheless, it is not gentle, and it is always prepared to secure its interests with force, and indeed, even maybe preferably, with fraud. When Aristotle describes the best practical regime in his politics, he mentions needing to have walls that stay up to date with enemy missile improvements. The reason I mentioned Plato and Aristotle here is that they took war to be a permanent possibility that is co-evil with man as man, not as something that can be wished away. That is to say, war is a fundamental feature of human reality or nature that one must reconcile one's hopes with. It is not a technical problem to be solved, as Kant thinks. As we will see, Kant's views of nature, or Kant views nature as providential and progressive whereas the classical philosophers saw it as stingy in a relatively fixed order. But to say this is in a way to get very far ahead of ourselves. So, let's closely examine Kant's preliminary and definite articles that he claims will usher in perpetual peace, should they be followed. The first pre preliminary article says, No conclusion of peace shall be considered valid as such, if it was made with a secret reservation for future war, end quote. The first and most obvious question is, who will do the considering? Or rather, who will physically compel states to make their treaties the right way? Now, perhaps there's a more charitable way to interpret this first preliminary article. Maybe Kant is attempting to assist the foolish but well-meaning statesmen try to be rigorous in the creation of long-lasting successful peace. In order for a peace to be long-lasting, or even permanent, the underlying cause of dispute needs to be completely negotiated so that war does not arrive again. But even if we grant Kant this point, we might wonder if it is not possible, or if it is possible in all or even most cases, to root out the causes of war. Kant himself grants later in the essay that many human beings see war as noble and as a unique opportunity to display the virtue of courage. Can a peace agreement declare that humans will forsake their love of the noble? That is to say, if you can't get rid of this love, then maybe you can't get rid of the possibility of war. Okay, preliminary article two. No independently existing state, whether it be large or small, may be acquired by another state by inheritance, exchange, purchase, or gift. Kant says that nations can't just be appended onto other nations. For they, like trees, have roots which shouldn't be dug up. These roots give nations different moral personalities. But might it be precisely those significant and substantive differences between peoples built up over time that lead to conflict? To elaborate, these different moral personalities or ways of life produce a feeling among a people that these people here are my own and I owe my own in a way that I don't owe anyone else. Now here's the sort of common sense way of illustrating the love of one's own. Can I get married and then spend every spare moment working for charities? No, you owe something special to your beloved, 
and you may have to deprive others of good things in order to benefit yourself and your loved ones. Now, we raised a question during our examination of the first article about whether or not a peace treaty can really hope to remove all causes of war. But here in the second article, isn't Kant himself now suddenly telling us about another, literally deeply rooted reason that wars occur? That is, that wars may emerge out of a disagreement about the right way of life, or that war might occur because of a deeply rooted love of one's own. Can these kinds of things be written into peace agreements to get rid of them? I don't know. So far, it seems like Kant's essay has been more helpful in revealing why war cannot go away rather than showing us how to get rid of it. Okay, the third preliminary article. Standing armies will be gradually abolished altogether. Okay, it makes sense that the abolition of standing armies would be a necessary condition of securing a permanent peace. Kant even gives a nod towards reality by insisting that it must be a gradual drawdown as trust slowly builds between nations. Strikingly, and I think much to Kant's credit, he points to the military-industrial complex and how it can lead to unnecessary wars as the cost becomes too great when equipment is sitting around unused. You don't want people who are just trying to make money lead you into wars that are unnecessary. That's not good. Uh, and Kant agrees with that or sort of uh, shows that to us. Now, Kant makes the further point that keeping a standing army is to treat soldiers as mere instruments and not as ends in themselves. To counter this, though, it seems fair to say that the kind of war and what the war is for makes all the difference as to whether soldiers are mere instruments. Furthermore, Kant seems to overlook the sort of obvious fact that many men voluntarily join the military. They're not always drafted or conscripted. That is to say, they're not compelled. Some people want to have the opportunity to defend their nation. Okay, so let's turn to the fourth uh, preliminary article. No national debt shall be contracted in connection with the external affairs of state. Here, Kant brings out clearly how easily finance can be weaponized or used in warlike ways. In this way, Kant shows us that we can't necessarily expect to rely on commercial activity to completely pacify the planet. Those who are the best at making money are in a position to turn a weakling nation into a powerhouse overnight through loans for weapons. A tiny country is just a nice deal and a montage scene away from being able to devastate their neighbors. Thus, Kant wants any national debt that is accrued to be used for peaceable domestic projects only. He also mentions in this section, almost in passing, that being warlike seems to be built into human nature, or rather that those in power cannot help wish, help but wish to go to war. The fifth preliminary article. No state shall forcibly interfere in the constitution and government of another state. If you want to have perpetual peace, this article makes a lot of sense. You need to gradually build trust between states so they can eventually abolish their armies. They cannot do this unless they trust each other, and you can't trust someone who tries to forcibly interfere with your people's way of life. The emphasis here, though, I would suggest is on force. Because Kant is very obviously telling every single government in the world to modify their constitution and their way of life. For Kant, then, force is the opposite of reason and is therefore bad. We turn to the sixth uh, preliminary article. Uh, and once we get past the prelim articles, uh, we won't go as systematically through it and we'll try to put together maybe a more 
uh, interesting summation of the argument uh, altogether or help ourselves to other parts of the text. But before then, we turn to the sixth preliminary article. No state at war with another shall permit such acts of hostility as would make mutual confidence impossible during a future time of peace. Such acts would include the employment of assassins, poisoners, breach of agreements, the instigation of treason within the enemy state, etc. It is obviously difficult to build trust with <clears throat> when, when another nation is not simply spying on you, but also killing individuals in sneaky, underhanded, and dishonorable ways. One striking thing in Kant's justification for his article, worth pointing out, is his characterization of war. Quote, After all, war is only a regrettable expedient for asserting one's rights by force within a state of nature, where no court of justice is available to judge with legal authority. End quote. Kant seems to act like rulers are just bureaucrats stuck with an unfortunate task. Even if one is wary of war, and thinks that engaging in war is a grave choice to be done only under the rarest of circumstances, would they have to see that undertaking as regrettable and merely expedient? Again, as we have mentioned, and as we will discuss soon, Kant admits late in the essay that war is often conceived of as noble, which is to say, a chance to demonstrate one's excellence and virtue, a chance to prove to oneself what kind of man one is, and the opportunity to claim a unique kind of glory for oneself and one's people. All that is to say, war is not always seen as a, quote, regrettable expedient. In the first half of his essay, Kant does very little to try and understand the, psych the psychological type of the warrior as he understands himself. He only attempts to do this in a limited way in the last part of the essay, after he has already made his demands about how nations should modify their constitutions. So, we end our look at Kant's preliminary articles and move uh, to the definite articles. In the first definite article, Kant says, quote, The civil constitution of every state shall be republican. He goes on to say that a republican constitution is founded upon three principles. Firstly, the principle of freedom for all members of the society as men. Secondly, the principle of the dependence of everyone upon a single common legislation as subjects. And thirdly, the principle of legal equality for everyone as citizens. Kant is hopeful that a government that requires the consent of the people to go to war will be far less likely to go to war because he doesn't think the people will want to send themselves or to pay for the war or to suffer any of the consequences that usually attend war. Furthermore, Kant says that a necessary feature of republican government is the separation of powers, in particular the separation of executive and legislative branches. He, as he sees it, the person who writes up the laws should not be the person who physically enforces them. Interestingly enough, Kant sees it as possible to have democratic, aristocratic, and monarchic republics. So long as the people give their consent to the government or to the governors with separated powers, the government is good as far as Kant is concerned. Now as we turn to the second definite article, we see that Kant says, that the right of nations shall be based on a federation of free states. Now this, this is where things start to get interesting. As we discussed last time with Waltz, the fact that there is no overarching policeman with overwhelming physical force over nations means that all nations in a condition of anarchy, or that, that all nations are in a condition of anarchy in relation to one another. The anarchic structure always admits of war as a distinct possibility. 
International relations is thus a self-help system, where if you are not strong enough to defend yourself, you cannot count on anyone coming to save you. Some international relations theorists who engage with this problem think that a one-world state is the only solution by which the structure of international relations can decisively change in a way that can forever prevent war. Strikingly, even though that Kant sees and admits the problem of anarchy or that nations are in a state of nature with one another, he does not advocate for a one-world state. Kant does not lay out his reasons here in the second half of this article, so I'm going to be pulling some things out of order from the rest of the essay to show why Kant does not want a one-world state and how his understanding of nature and human nature inform his position on the world state. Kant says that even if we were to grant that humans are mostly or entirely self-seeking, or to go farther, even if we grant that humans are devils, nature itself has conspired to bring humans into a peaceful coexistence. He says that each people would find itself confronted by another neighboring people pressing in upon it, thus forcing it to form itself internally into a state in order to encounter the other as an armed power. That is to say, our self-seeking desire to preserve ourselves helps us forge communities that we are less likely, that is to say, we, that we are so that we are less likely to be destroyed by other marauding groups that are well-organized enough to take what they will from us. Kant then sees, at least from a very long view of history, that war has been a kind of blessing for us up till now. For weaker groups were driven away from good land and compelled to go elsewhere, and so the entire world was peopled. Those peoples or those people who were driven to new lands now find themselves in positions where they have good things at their disposal that perhaps didn't initially look useful like spices or other raw materials. Now, after thousands of years, the different peoples are ready to trade with one another. This is another activity that's potentially consistent with self-interest as Kant sees it. Thus, while nature booted us all apart, it is now slowly bringing us back together in peaceable ways. The question then becomes, Exactly how close can nature bring the peoples of the earth together, and how will it continue its benevolent and purposive quest to bring about perpetual peace? On one hand, Kant seems to think that nature will not lead the world into a world state government. For one thing, as we noted earlier, Kant sees different nations or peoples in possession of different moral personalities. He extends this thought here by pointing out later in the essay that nature has seen fit to give these peoples linguistic and religious differences. Finally, he brings out that a universal monarchy, which is to say a world state, would likely be a soulless despotism that will crush germs of goodness and eventually lapse back into anarchy. He doesn't say much about exactly why this would be, although it probably isn't hard for some of you to imagine how a one-world state run by Jeff Bezos enforcing progressively interpreted articles from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, might end up being soulless. However this may be, the one substantive thing Kant says about the problem of the world state is that, quote, laws progressively lose their impact as the government increases its range, end quote. This makes a lot of sense. If the global capital uh, of our world were, say, in Beijing, it's hard to imagine ranchers in Montana being deeply invested in enforcing those laws. Indeed, we can already see in the U.S. how massively disconnected our ruling elites who make and enforce the rules feel from us. It seems beyond human conceptual capacity to think about a United Nations Council ruling over 10 billion humans in 2050. 
However this may be, Kant envisions a peace that is secured by a federation of allied nations that retain their own sovereignty, that, quote, guarantee an equilibrium of forces and vigorous rivalry. What will that rivalry consist of during the perpetual peace is hard to say. Maybe the Olympics will be especially entertaining in the future. Okay, so here is one final word on Kant that will put him directly in conversation with Carl Schmitt. Kant, in more, place, in more than one place in his essay, hints that his conceptual scheme works should humans remain as they are. Nonetheless, he seems to think that there are untapped moral potentialities that currently lie dormant in man, but that could be realized in the future, perhaps through enlightenment or the proper education. In other words, man's nature might change such that he would be more able and even willing to join a world state. He just isn't suited to such a state right now. The question of whether or not man's nature can change over time is one we will return to at the end of our discussion of Schmidt. So, enough about Kant. We turn now to Schmidt's uh, The Concept of the Political. Now, before saying anything at all about Schmidt's book, The Concept of the Political, we must say what it is that Schmidt means by the word political. Schmidt begins the concept of the political by laying out what he takes to be the fundamental political distinction, friend and enemy. By enemy, Schmidt means a public enemy as opposed to a private one. An enemy exists only when, at least potentially, one fighting collectivity of people confronts another similar collectivity. The political is the most intense antagonism. It is not mere competition, but gains its real meaning because it refers to the real possibility of physical killing. For Schmidt, the political cannot be simply identified with the state, for it in fact precedes the state. Neither can the political be identified with party politics and its scramble for office, unless such party politics leads to civil war in which friends and enemies might possibly physically kill one another. With that definition in hand, we can say that in Schmidt's own words, his book is chiefly polemical, which is to say, directed at an immediate and concrete enemy, liberalism. At the same time, Schmidt seems to be making a theoretical inquiry where he quietly poses the following question. Is the political a permanent or natural feature of human life that will remain with us always? Or it is, is it something that can be threatened, which can vanish from human life? If the political is a permanent feature of human life, then the liberalism of Kant, or as it is practiced in Schmidt's day and ours, is quite simply mistaken, and the liberalism will collapse in on itself for failing to grasp and accept this fundamental feature of reality. If, on the other hand, the political is something that can be crushed by force or changed through enlightenment, then it is something one would have to fight much harder to hold on to, since nature wouldn't necessarily be its ally. Whether or not the political is in principle capable of being eliminated, it looks to be the case that Schmidt will take a stand on behalf of the political, or that he affirms the political. We will have to see why. Now, Schmidt notes that liberals like to use the words humanity as an attempt at a neutral term, which is anything but neutral. As Schmidt puts it, the concept of humanity is an especially useful ideological instrument of imperialist expansion, and in its ethical humanitarian form, it is a specific vehicle of economic imperialism. It is rhetorically brilliant in a sense, because it allows improvers of humanity to ask those who oppose them, 
are you an enemy of humanity? And to be an enemy of humanity is to be inhumane or less than human. In this way, Schmidt, Schmidt <laughs> imagined war, imagines wars increasing in intensity and severity insofar as they are fought with the intention of ending war once and for all. You can see how this conceals uh, you can see how liberals attempt to conceal the logic of the political, breaking up the world into defenders of humanity who are friends and enemies of humanity. That is to say, this allegedly neutral term humanity still breaks humans up into different collectivities that are potentially hostile to one another. Now returning to an earlier part of the book, Schmidt suggests that liberals have tried to hide the political through semantics. Instead of calling payment tribute, we now say reparations, for it sounds more juristic or legal. To add an example that Schmidt does not use, we might say that liberals prefer the term Secretary of Defense instead of the term Secretary of War. This is an attempt to pretend that the entire world is under a shared legal order in which wars no longer exist, but police actions still do. So if we take the liberal emphasis on humanity described above with the semantic shift that Schmidt points out, we see that the logic of liberalism is very much anti-political and points to a one-world state of some kind. Now, liberalism attempts to move between uh, describing things in an overly intellectualized way and through economics or trade as a way to avoid politics and therewith war. The term, quote, politics becomes connected with thievery, force, and repression, end quote. But we might also wonder if economics, too, could be connected with cunning and deception. Schmidt supposes that liberalism will lead to new friend-enemy distinctions as some groups may seek to withdraw from the peaceful methods of liberalism. However, this very withdrawal may be considered a kind of extra-economic violence or violation of contract. Thus, while liberalism hopes to replace the concept of the political, it unwittingly creates a new potential set of enemies and therefore fails to escape the logic of the political. Schmidt further proposes that the negation of the political, which is inherent in every consistent individualism, leads necessarily to a political practice of distrust toward all conceivable political forces, state, church, or other institutions, which restrict freedom. That is, the institutions which formerly provided guidance about what's good and bad, just and unjust, pious and impious, are to be turned away from. As all good boys and girls know, you are not supposed to talk about politics or religion at the dinner table, unless, that is, you are on the side of humanity, and then it is your duty to shame your family members for having anti-humanitarian political views. But setting that joke aside, Schmidt suggests that liberalism's, or liberals focus or that liberals focus on the individual orients us away from institutions that could call on us for collective action, that might ask us to risk our lives for something higher than mere life, namely the state and the church. The statements of Schmidt that we've examined so far, he has, or in the statements we've examined so far, he has seemed confident that the political is a permanent feature of human life and that it would be perilous for liberals to lose sight of it. However, there are a few statements that Schmidt makes that indicate that he wavers on whether or not the political can indeed be eliminated from human life. There are three key passages I want to call your attention to, where Schmidt spells out the unfortunate consequences that would befall mankind if the political were to be, uh, if the political were to cease to be of significance to man 
or if it were to disappear from human life. Strikingly, in the second of the three passages, Schmidt seems to be genuinely open to the possibility that the political might disappear and not merely be concealed. Now let's turn to this first major statement. This is going to be a longer quotation from Schmidt, so I'll make sure to be clear when I stop speaking in Schmidt's voice and speak again in my own. Quote, A world in which the possibility of war is utterly eliminated, a completely pacified globe, would be a world without the distinction of friend and enemy, and hence a world without politics. It is conceivable that such a world might contain many very interesting antitheses and contrasts, competitions and intrigues of every kind. But there would not be a meaningful antithesis whereby men could be required to sacrifice life, authorized to shed blood and kill other human beings. End quote. And this comes from section three. If you have the George Schwab translation, it would be page 34. So, a pacified and unified globe might have, as Schmidt says, interesting antitheses, but it will decisively lack meaningful ones. It therefore lacks distinctions and becomes a homogeneous mass. But how interesting can these antitheses be? To the extent that the Olympics or for soccer, the World Cup, are interesting, it is because we are cheering for our own against others. We are proud of our country for creating the right kind of biological and environmental conditions within which excellence can be fostered. People will make real sacrifices to travel from, say, Argentina to Russia to watch a soccer match. But if the players are not your own from your nation, would you have any longer the desire to travel across the world to see them? All this is to say that in a completely pacified and united world, even interesting competitions like the Olympics will be drained of what made them interesting in the first place. Now let's turn to a second crucial passage along these same lines. Uh, quoting from Schmidt now. If the different states, religions, classes, and other human groupings on earth should be so unified that a conflict among them is impossible and even inconceivable, and if civil war should forever be foreclosed in a realm which embraces the globe, then the distinction of friend and enemy would also cease. What remains is neither politics nor state, but culture, civilization, economics, morality, law, art, entertainment, etc. If and when this condition will appear, I do not know. At the moment, this is not the case. And that's from section 3, um, and in the Schwab translation, 53 to 54, pages 53 to 54. The word entertainment is at the end of this list, but perhaps it is the most significant. For without the seriousness imposed on human life by the possibility of war, it may, that, it may be that all of human life threatens to be reduced to entertainment. Can this pacified world really claim the interest of a human being worthy of the name? Schmidt sees the threatened status of the political as a threat to the seriousness of human life. The affirmation of the political is ultimately an affirmation of the morally serious life. But we note, again, in this passage, Schmidt seems to be open to the possibility that the political could go away, which would mean that you'd have to fight for it to have it remain in the world. It's not just something you can count on uh, re-emerging or something like that, if that's the case. Now, let's look at the third long passage um, 
and a striking line where Schmidt makes very clear some of the stakes or what's at stake if the political is lost from the world. Quote, were a world state to embrace the entire globe and humanity, then it would, n- it would be no political entity and could only be loosely called a state if, in fact, all humanity in the entire world were to become a unified entity based exclusively on economics and technically regulating traffic, then it still would not be more of a social entity then it still would not be more of a social entity than a social entity of tenants in a tenement house, customers purchasing gas from the same utility company, or passengers traveling on the same bus. This also comes from section 6 on page 57. Schmidt deliberately describes this in a way that provokes horror in all serious men. It may be so that most humans don't end up reaching the heights of heroism, or doing something that really matters for their nation. But don't we all dream of that opportunity? Don't we prepare ourselves and our efforts at self-improvement to make ourselves ready should we somehow be called on to lead or see an opportunity to grasp an important moment? Don't we want to live in a world where we can at least dream about such beautiful deeds? Next time, we will look at uh, Remarque and Junger, and see that the argument between them runs largely along Kantian and Schmidian lines. Remarque will pull on our heartstrings to draw us toward a unified and pacified world, and Younger will make more clear to us what the status of the warrior should be among the different human psychological types, and why even despite the horrors of war, we have to strive to keep the world broken up into distinct parts. Thanks 